0: The following podcast is a Dear Media production.
1: What's up, well-beings? I'm Kelly Noonan-Goris, and this is The Heal Podcast. Every Thursday, I interview the leading experts in health and healing, as well as real people with extraordinary healing stories. Whether you want to heal a physical diagnosis, a mental health issue, a past trauma, or heal our planet... The Heal Podcast is for you. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss that one episode that holds the answers you've been searching for. You can follow us on Instagram at @healdocumentary and at Kelly Gores and catch episode clips on Heal Documentary's YouTube channel. Don't forget to tune in every Thursday anywhere podcasts are found. I'm Dr. Deepika Chopra, the Optimism Doctor, and this is Looking Up, a place where you can expect to find raw, transparent storytelling. Listen in to learn real science-based techniques to cultivate more optimism, resiliency, and authentic joy from artists, athletes, experts, and many more. It's not every day you get the opportunity to talk to someone who's been held hostage by an indigenous Amazonian tribe and live to tell the tale. But lucky for us, and for him, today is that day. My guest on this week's episode of Looking Up is Pedro Andrade. TV host, activist, journalist, and storyteller. We talk through his new show, Unknown Amazon, what growing up in Brazil was like, and knowing from a young age what he wanted out of life and all the steps and work he put in to getting there. He views optimism as a muscle, and as you guys know, I view it the same, a muscle that must be strengthened and share stories with us that perfectly encapsulate the most important aspect of resiliency, our human connections. His love of travel and the way he finds a human side to every story makes his insights on wellness, how we view setbacks, and the ever-evolving climate crisis something we can all relate to. He doesn't believe in shortcuts or that getting what we want can be found through magic moments, but instead speaks profoundly about the work we must do to see what we feel passionate about become a reality. He's honest with us about finding empathy through the most extreme circumstances, dealing with PTSD, and how this show actually changed his life. There's so much to learn from his wise words and his very unique experiences. I know you'll enjoy this episode of Looking Up as Much as I did. The way that I like to start looking up is with a brief little section that I like to call looking in. And it's just a series of some short rapid fire style questions. And so please answer um, the first thing that comes to your mind. So Pedro, has, right, there, been a, me with it. <laughs> has there been a book that you have read over your lifetime so far that has actually changed the way in which you live your life? And if so, please share with us the title and why.
0: (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Don't judge me because the first book that comes to mind is actually a comic book that I read when I was a kid and it legit changed my life. Growing up, I know this has to be really quick, right? But can I explain why? No, no, no.
1: I want you to explain why. Definitely. It doesn't have to be super
0: quick. Well. As far as I can remember, I've always wanted to travel the world. And I remember my grandmother, who was born in a lower, 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 lower middle class family in the north of Brazil. With the little money she made, she traveled the world. And she gave me uh, these comic books that were from Belgium, uh, The Adventures of Tintin. And later, I think in 2011, Steven Spielberg and Peter Jackson made a movie. But I remember like being really young and being fascinated by, you know, his life and the fact that he was a reporter and traveled with his dog with a camera around his neck. And I remember dreaming about visiting the pyramids and going to China and understanding uh, isolated indigenous cultures. So it sounds silly, and I think it's probably maybe a little disappointing for people to hear myself as a journalist talking about something that's so... Childlike, But I really do believe a lot of this inspiration that sort of got me here came from that book. Later on, I mean, I, I've fallen in love with so many books, and, and I tend to gravitate towards nonfiction. I just finished uh, Just Kids by Patti Smith. I love New York in the seventies. I love sort of like the artist, artists that lived here around that time. Uh, there is this historian called Peter Frankopen that is an amazing writer and he wrote a book called the Silk Roads and now the new Silk Roads. And it also has inspired me to pitch some projects that I'm going to be working on like in the near future. So yeah, books are good. They, they're fuel.
1: I don't think it's silly at all. I love that you chose that book. I think that so much of our inspiration actually comes from our childhood and things that we were exposed to and mm-hmm. it actually while you were describing it I was I was like this actually makes a lot of sense for the path that you have been on and your journey yeah. um which I can't wait to dive more into but I love that. It was it it was an adventure book and it, it inspired you to <laughs> Go on adventures. And I like when I think of you, I think of the word adventurer. So I think yes. that's really spot on. <laughs> okay, next question. People think I'm blank, but I'm actually blank.
0: This is not a statement about me, but people think my life is a constant vacation, <laughs> but it's actually a lot of hard work. A few times I've been introduced in like speaking events, and they're like, he has the job everybody wants. You know, which is true. I do, but not for the reasons that people think, you know, Uh, it's very uncomfortable at times. It's very dangerous at times. It's very lonely at times. But, you know, it's a constant source of stories. I, I feel like some journalists love sports. Some journalists love entertainment. Some journalists love celebrities. I really love people. Uh, doing what we're doing right now, to me, it's such a privilege. It's such a pleasure. So I feel like people think that I, you know, live on this lavish, glamorous vacation, but it's not that. But it's a pretty good life.
1: I actually really like that answer. I think that you know, someone that travels for a living. You could, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and it's the same thing with like anyone's job that requires a lot of travel. I think mm-hmm. our like initial, you know, preconception of that is like, oh, that sounds amazing. And it is like you get to be yeah. exposed to so many different cultures and types of people and even like different types of land. And, yeah. and, and that's so cool and adventurous. But at the same time, um, I think it's really important to sort of expose it for all of its layers and i can totally understand how it would be lonely and mm-hmm. and definitely from from a little bit that i've read and been exposed by some of the the stories that you tell dangerous which we're going to get into mm-hmm. but yeah it's not all it's not all glamour and it takes a lot of work
0: a lot of work a, a lot, lot of work. work it's interesting because now unknown amazon is on the air and like it, of course the feedback is amazing. And I'm so touched by all the messages that I've been getting and like people bumping into me in the street and talking about how much they love the project. But the real work is done in a way, you know, the Mm -hmm. pre-production, the pitching of the show, being there, filming, talking to those people, like I said, at times, no toilet, mosquitoes that will bite you through your jeans, held hostage by armed indigenous people, death sworn, and then like sort of like the editing. And the post-production. I love every bit of it, but it's weird revisiting it. I believe it's probably similar with actors, you know, that work on a movie for so long and dive deep into like this character's shoes or this other persona. And then you sort of go home and you sort of start working at other other things. And when the movie launched, like now when the show is launched, you share it with the world, but it's almost like, revisiting a past. Mm -hmm. It's interesting.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay. Jumping back a little while, three words to describe yourself as a teenager during the high school years.
0: Oh, wow. (laughs) I was always very driven, very lonely. Yeah. I didn't have a lot of friends and hopeful. Mm -hmm. Uh, 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 Like I, I I've always been really optimistic even when other people didn't believe not in me but didn't believe I could live the life I live or you know I, I mean it was it was highly unlikely that I would be here the executive producer the host of a TV show in America considering where I came from and I come from a lower middle class family in Rio I'm the first and only TV host from Brazil in America. So I'm not like bragging in any way, shape or form, but in a way, I've always known that it was doable. And Mm. I feel like my goals were always in the right place. I was doing it for the right reasons. I wasn't doing it because I was seeking fame and fortune. I was always seeking these stories and these conversations and a way to sort of, See the world and understand other worlds, if Mm -hmm. you will. So, Mm -hmm. yeah.
1: Well, that is a perfect segue to my next question, which obviously you said the magic word on this podcast, which is optimism. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you describe optimism? What does optimism mean to you?
0: Look, there are two ways of seeing optimism, like in my opinion. I feel like optimism can be a muscle that you tone. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it is something that you can practice and, you, uh, by being present and by sort of looking at facts, facts and statistics, and sort of looking at other people that are in, a, in worse situations that overcame trauma. I think that's one way of gaining optimism, if you will. But I do believe that some people are born with a certain level of optimism and I'm in awe of those people. Like you go to Haiti which is a country that has been destroyed so many times. You go to Ethiopia, which is a country that, you know, I mean, the people there have had to deal with the AIDS crisis. uh, So many kids were dying of hunger in the 70s and the 80s. I mean, you go to places like you speak to refugees, you speak to victims of human trafficking, and somehow there are some people that are just filled with optimism. And Mm -hmm. I can't help but wonder... Like, where did that come from? Like, Mm -hmm. why, how did they learn that? And I think some people are just blessed. I think they're just gifted. And I do believe that you asked me to describe optimism. I think optimism is knowing that it can get better, Mm -hmm. that it should get better, Mm -hmm. even when you're hopeless, even when life is really not being generous to -hmm. you. But it's something that, I think I'm, I've exercised this throughout the years. It's not something that I was born with, mm-hmm. but I think at this point, I am able to sort of look at the glass half full.
1: Well, what we do know about optimism is it is a muscle. So you are very correct in saying that uh, it's something that can be toned. Yes, of course, there is a heritability Sort of Mm -hmm. uh, factor, Um, but it's actually a lot smaller than many of us Mm -hmm. think or imagine. And so, you know, it's not easy, but it's a learned Mm -hmm. construct that I certainly wouldn't be doing what I was doing if I didn't believe that to be true.
0: I really feel also that there is a a sense of whatever happens, we'll work it out. Mm -hmm. Whatever happens, I'll be okay. Mm -hmm. You know, if I don't get that job, if this relationship doesn't go any further than this. If uh, I know I, I come from a privileged place because my life is in order, thank God. But at the same time, I feel like when there were times in which loved ones were going through something really painful, or even I was going through something really pain- painful, I think knowing that no matter what, if life doesn't turn out the way you thought it would, you'll be okay. And mm-hmm. that's really a gift. To be able to do that.
1: Absolutely. And we're going to talk a lot about that and sort of what optimism and resiliency have in common and how that's sort of been threaded throughout your journey. The last thing I want to ask you, uh, you know, in this, in this little section is three things that have brought you joy or happiness today.
0: All right. I don't know if it's going to sound truthful, but it definitely is. One of the things was waking up and knowing that we were going to do this. I think it's such a privilege to, you know, have space in your calendar to like have these conversations. And I think it's such a privilege to have, you know, someone who wants to hear about your experience, who wants to hear about your opinion, whether it's like we're doing it right now, whether it's a friend, whether it's a a relative. So that's one thing that, you know, I I woke up and I was in the shower and, and I was thinking, I I was excited about this, so that's one of the things. Maybe my Peloton, mm-hmm. <laughs> my exercise. I don't love doing it, but I love I love it when I'm done. Mm-hmm. I love <laughs> I, I love that I did it. It, it. I really believe I've never been sporty, spice. I've never been you know like into sports at all. <laughs> I, I I covered the World Cup. I don't know how, but. I, <laughs> feel like i find the human aspects of these things these situations and it works out but you know once i'm done with exercise i'm really glad that i did it and what's another thing that brought me happiness look i live in the city i want to live i've always wanted to live in this place i'm lucky enough to live in the neighborhood i always dreamed of living in what city do you live in I live in New York City. I live in the West Village. I moved Mm -hmm. to New York like 21, 22 years ago. But I usually say that New York lived in me way before I lived in New York. I was that Mm -hmm. awkward kid that listened to Empire, not Empire State of Mind. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No. I always mixed the Billy Joe one and the Alicia Keys <laughs> one, but I listened to the Billy Joe one when my friends were like listening to something much cooler. Uh, I loved Woody Allen films. I had a, a postcard from the Empire State framed in my room. So I always loved New York way be- even before I, I, I came here. Yeah. So when I walk out, like literally when I go around the block, I had a dog, a French bulldog that died a few years ago, but um, he lived with me here for 13 years and walking him around the block gave me so much joy because to me it was sort of like a, uh, I don't know, a way of remembering how lucky, I don't know if lucky is the right word, but how fortunate mm-hmm. I am to, to be living the life I've always dreamed of living. You know?
1: I, I mean, I think that that reminds me of one of my favorite things to sort of instill with some of the people that I work with and also just trying to remind myself to think about um, on a regular basis, which I think a lot of times us as humans, do not we don't really gravitate to this thought of, remember when you wanted what you currently have yeah. so badly. So and so we sort of are, we're much more sort of prone to sort of Want something, you know, really wish for it, work really hard for it. Mm-hmm. And then, as it materializes, we sort of just move on to the next thing. And we don't spend a lot of time and space and energy really sort of marinating in what we currently have and remembering all that it took to get there. yeah, and I think that's one of the most, you know, it sounds simple, but it's a practice that actually, is one of my most sort of used increasing optimism tips or tools. Mm-hmm. And it's something yeah. that we could all practice. And I think that I have a similar experience, and mine also is walking um around where I live. or I just remember this very distinct memory that I was driving my my older son. He's four now, but he was, you know, maybe around. Five months or so, I was driving him in the car somewhere and, and I was just really tired and he was having a tough time. And I think I'd gotten in an argument with my husband before that. And I was just in a mood. And I was driving around the corner from our old house and I looked in the rear view mirror and I saw him in his car seat. And I just thought, oh my gosh, like for that snap second, I remember imagining when we had installed the car seat when I was pregnant before he was born. And I would look in the car seat behind and be like, I wonder what it's going to be like to just look at him, you know, when he's just behind me. And I had done that so many times in that five months, but I hadn't really like brought myself back to that. And it just like really, it triggered like putting things in perspective. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I literally had to pull over. I was just like overcome with this wave of just like, it was all kinds of things, joy, happiness, gratitude, pride, like self-pride that we had gotten there, like knowing the parts that I had done to to be there. But like also just like, oh my gosh, like I'm going to make this moment last really long. And so I pulled over and I just like allowed myself to really sit in it and um that just reminds me right now to to do that more. Um, that's
0: really that's really really beautiful and I mean I I'm at an age in which like so many friends have kids and a lot of times they really struggle to have yeah. these kids. And I mean I'm sure having children I don't have any yet but I'm sure it's really tough at times and it's exhausting and it's not always fun. But that's a really great exercise. And I mean, with traveling, not comparing, but it's in a way similar. You know, a lot of times when I'm stuck in a plane for Lord knows how long and we miss a flight or I find myself in a really risky situation, it's easy to sort of fall into the, what am I doing here? Mm -hmm. Like, why am I doing this? And then I agree. I do believe it's like an emotional exercise to remind yourself to be capable of remembering how much you wanted this, yes. uh, And I, and there is another exercise that I try to practice a lot. I'm I've always been very, like I said, driven, very uh, ambitious. And so you have this goal, you have this dream, and you work, 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 and you get it. And I always tend to jump to the next dream mm-hmm. and jump to the next dream. And it, it is great, and I think it helps uh, you achieve success. But at the same time, you're forgetting to actually savor what you worked so hard for, you know? So I think sometimes I'm like, okay, yes, I I also want this project, but right now I have this one that I worked Mm. so hard for. So like really taste it, smell it, feel it, you know?
1: Absolutely. You know, one of the episodes that I recorded, I think on season one was with this doctor, professor from UCLA. And we talked about this idea and the research behind like really how you could sort of like what are, what is the what is the science behind some of these brain hacks to increase positive mm-hmm. mood and that was really one of them it's like when you experience positive mood it's like actually putting yourself like Pulling over like I did, but pulling your putting yourself in that moment for longer, like exercising your brain to feel it longer, because we just don't. We sort of it's fleeting usually, and so it is about like what is it? What, this is joy right now. What does it smell like? What does it taste like? What does yeah. it feel like? All of that, and I think like something that is so interesting to me is kind of little clips um, of where you've come from, and then actually like coming full circle, like hearing about one of your favorite books or the book that changed your life was The Adventures of Tintin. And like how, you know, some people might just sort of call that manifestation, wow, Mm -hmm. like look where you've come from and you're literally doing your Tintin, (laughs) Um, you know, full circle. But I think like oftentimes the danger that I think with just blocking it to that is a lot of people might just chalk that up to luck or the universe sort of rewarding you for wanting something really bad. But what I'm really interested in along with all that is sort of all of the work that you put in to getting from that little kid, you know, in Rio who against all odds always knew it would be possible, not that surprised that you are a successful Journalist and TV host in America, doing what you absolutely love, hardships included, but doing what you love, um, adventuring around the world. So I know that you haven't necessarily had a linear say. You know, same with me. I I'm doing exactly what I love, but it was certainly not linear. I've had a lot of jobs yeah. and careers in between. So I'm wondering if you can give us a brief sort of snapshot of your journey into journalism and doing exactly what you love to do and how you actually created it?
0: Absolutely. First, uh, I mean, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to travel. So people ask me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I was like, I just want to travel. And they're like, that's not a job. Like, Well, then I'll be a flight attendant. I'll be a pilot. I'll be an astronaut. I'll be a truck driver. Just make me move. Make me go places. I've always wanted that. And when I went to school for journalism in Brazil, eventually I went because I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do aside from traveling, but like, I didn't know what job I wanted. And I figured out. I figured that if you're a journalist, you could, you know, be talk about politics. Like I did for a long time. You can uh, cover sporting events. You can do so much. You can cover. I always loved books and movies. I could be a critic. So that's why I did journalism, but I had no idea that eventually I would do exactly what I always dreamed of doing. I also don't believe, and I never have believed in shortcuts. So I feel like my whole life, I knew where I wanted to get to, but I never thought that it was going to happen overnight. Mm-hmm. I never thought I was going to win the lottery. I never thought that someone was going to discover me in the street and say, come host the show. I always knew I really had to work my butt off. I modeled for a little bit, but the reason why I modeled was basically because I wanted to travel. And I remember this huge photographer and a testing director stopped me in the streets in Rio when I was really young. And they were like, "Have you ever thought of modeling. I was like, no, not at all. I was not the hunk in school. I was not cute at all. And they're like, you can make a lot of money. I was like, ah, it's okay. I don't think so. You can get famous. I was like, ah, it's fine. They're like, you can travel. <laughs> ding, the,
1: ding, ding, ding.
0: Those, yeah, those were the magic words. And I did. And that's how I went. My first time pretty much out of the country was modeling. Uh, I was never a very successful model, but I, I think success is also objective I kind of got what I wanted from the job, you know, I didn't need to be Alex Lundquist or Giselle Bündchen, like I was okay with just traveling. And then when I came to New York, I mean, when you arrive in New York, you barely speak English, you don't know anyone, you don't have friends, like it's tough, the city tests you. It's not Mm -hmm. sex in the city Mm -hmm. at all, you know, and um, I bartended in some of the filthiest bars in the city with my shirt off. I was a promoter. I was a dog walker. I work in Kochek, But always with this newspaper that still exists. I don't know if it still exists, I mean, as a newspaper, but the, the website is out there and it's called Backstage. And usually it's for like, if you want to be an intern, if you want to change bulbs in the studio, if you want to grab burgers for the star and between castings. I was looking for opportunities and believe it or not, after years, I booked a job and I became the taxi guy in New York. What does that mean? It's like the first time that taxi had taxi TV in the back of the the, ta- the driver. And oh, wow. yeah. yeah, that was the fir- my first job as a host. And the only content were these li- little lifestyle segments that I covered. So from JFK to, I don't know, Chelsea, you would watch the same clip, me saying yum, yum, (laughs) trying things in different restaurants for, I don't know, 40 times, but it was great, like great exercise. Then I was hired by a huge show in Brazil. It's the biggest political, the most influential political debate in South America. It's called Manhattan Connection. And I was in a panel with three of the most brilliant journalists in Latin America talking about the foreign policy of the Gaza Strip, talking about the economy in Singapore, talking about the elections in India. And that really toned some muscles because it was a weekly show Mm -hmm. and it kept me on my toes and sort of like built this material that I will always use. I mean, when I walk into a room, I've studied so much about so much that I feel like I'm prepared, Mm -hmm. if you will, to talk about a lot of things that people don't expect And then there was this life-changing moment. I hosted a morning show for Fusion, which was a network by ABC. So I had to wake up 2.30 a.m. every day, every day from Monday to Friday for two and a half years. Then I believe the biggest game changer in my life happened. I was already successful in Brazil. And this huge network, the third largest network in the world, asked me what I wanted to do. What show do you want to host? And I pitched a show about places going through irreversible transformations. And that was my first travel show. It lived for five seasons up until the pandemic hit. Uh, It took me to 50 different countries. I've interviewed Syrian refugees in Lebanon, North Korean refugees in Seoul, prostitutes in Japan, politicians in Mexico. And I'm really proud of what we built. Today is the most watched travel show in Latin America. Wow. and then came unknown amazon which i'm so proud of and it's on the air right now every tuesday 10 p.m. on vice
1: <laughs> wow okay and then you know you sort of alluded to this for a brief second but i'm really interested for many reasons but obviously from a resiliency point of view you were held hostage by yeah. an amazonian <laughs> tribe like can yeah. you please get a little more into detail with that and when that was and Yes. To how you pulled through it, and what you were thinking, and what kept you afloat, and all these things. Like, I just have a million questions yes. about that.
0: Absolutely. Well, when I pitched unknown Amazon, I actually pitched to another network, an amazing, huge network, and they were very excited about it. And the pandemic hit, and like many other channels, they were like, "Look, we need to pause. We will revisit. We'll start production when the world." comes back to normal at that time we didn't have vaccines we didn't know if this pandemic was going to last five or ten years or if it would be forever so i was like no i kind of want to do this right now i think uh the amazon is right now i know it is the most environmentally speaking important place on earth it's either now or never i got to go down there so i went to vice and vice right away said yes, Vice is that network that sort of tells stories that other networks don't, that goes places where, where other networks don't. And when I pitched it, they loved it. And the, the concept was the human aspects of the Amazon. You know, we, we read all the time about the wildfires, political turmoil in Brazil, wildlife trafficking, but we really don't know who these people are. Absolutely. Um, so we, we decided to cover a different community each episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, on this community, we were sort of covering urban indigenous. When you think about the Amazon, it's easy to like, find a stereotype and you think about what an indigenous person looks like. But we're talking about over 350 ethnicities. So there's so much, there's so many nuances. There are so many shades of gray. Uh, in one episode, I go to this, community called Munduruku. Munduruku means the head choppers in their language, in their idiom. And I meet this fascinating woman who has become one of the most respected indigenous rights activists in the world. Her name is Alessandra. And she takes me into her community and she basically proves to me that they just want to be left alone. Mm -hmm. They don't want press. They don't want politicians. They don't want miners, loggers, illegal extractivists. They're like for centuries, Indigenous people have survived. We want to do the same. Like, because of globalization, because of greed, you guys are here. We, we appreciate you, but just leave us alone. We don't want anyone extracting from our land. Mm. I'm telling this whole story because it gets to where we get held hostage. No,
1: please of, tell the whole story.
0: Great. All of a sudden, uh, we hear that some people from that same Indigenous community, they blocked the busiest road in the Amazon because they were fighting for the right to explore their own land. So I'm like, there's a paradox here. Like I just spent all this time with these people and they said, we don't want to damage the land. We don't want to, we don't want illegal miners here. And all of a sudden there are these 250 indigenous people blocking a road saying, no, this is our land, but we want to profit from it. We want to explore it. So I was like, well, like i think any journalist in their right mind would do i went there to talk to them and the thing about my job is and the thing that keeps my mom up at night is things can go wrong really fast you know like whether you're in i don't know a slum in cairo and you're interviewing people that have like uh, the mother of two terrorists that i interviewed for another show you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's gonna, what you're going to find once that ele- elevator door opens. Mm-hmm. and And the Amazon is even more because you don't have medical facilities. It's sort of like no man's land. You can't trust a lot of the authorities down there. So I knew what I was getting myself into. Anyway, we go to this protest and in literally 15 seconds, we look around and we're surrounded by armed indigenous people and like heavily armed, but also with indigenous weapons you know they had firearms but also bows and arrows and spears and there's something really tough to explain about when you find yourself with an arrow pointed to your forehead in a weird way you know I mean just human hair error like someone could slip and you could get killed in two seconds but there's something almost animalistic and I don't say this in a critical way But indigenous people, the way they deal with death is very different from the way we deal with death. The way they deal with killing someone or an animal, it's it's part of their everyday lives. And that's what we found out. Like literally, we were there for a few hours. They didn't speak English or Portuguese. And after a lot of talking to the couple of people that spoke Spanish and I talked to them... I convinced them to let us go, but they put this ink in our faces, uh, which basically is the mark of death. So you're death sworn. And basically what what it says is, we're gonna let you go now and this is your last chance to live. Because if anyone from our communities, from our tribes sees you, because your, your face is painted, they're like, we're gonna chop your head. That's why their names are Munduruku, the head choppers. So we had to be evacuated like that same night of course, there's a storm that, you know, planes are not flying. You're like, oh my God. It was tough. It was really, really, really tough. I'm not resentful. I understand where they're coming from. Like it, it, being an indigenous person in the world we live in today, is not easy. Historically, they've been ignored. They've been destroyed. They've been disrespected. So I understand, you know, where all that anger comes from, but When you're there, I mean, it's unavoidable. You think like, tell my mom I loved her, you know, tell my dad. (laughs) It's tough when you go through these traumas and they destroyed all of our equipment, but we were able to get some footage and you can see that on the show. But when I got back, I've done therapy. I have a therapist that I've worked with for a, a long time and I was feeling really off and down and weird. And he said, that's PTSD and i feel ridiculous saying that because you know you have these soldiers coming back from afghanistan you have people that went through some situations that are so much worse than mine and i acknowledge that but when you when you're afraid to die and when you think this is it that does something to you and i sort of had to respect that in me that feeling you know i had to respect that i needed to sort of recover from certain Things that I went through down in the amazon that that was one of the things,
1: you know. wow. And even like, work on, you know, to a lesser degree, um for all of us. I think, like many of us go through our life feeling kind of crappy about our feelings, being like, well, someone else has it a lot worse. So yeah. I don't feel that I should be feeling this way. And that's actually like a form of toxic positivity. That's not what we're talking about in terms of resiliency and moving forward. Um, I think, like, we have to validate and value, you know, how you just compared. You're like, oh, I feel kind of, you know, strange or silly. But like, yes, of course, that can cause PTSD. And that is a very traumatic. I mean, you were touched with death in a very real way. Um, It's just like I had chills when I was hearing you talk about this, like really a real sense of I don't know if I'm going to get out of this Mm -hmm. alive. Yeah.
0: I'm really proud of this episode. I'm proud of the whole series, but this episode has an emotional aspect to it. I end in tears because after that encounter, I go back to talk to, you know, the activist. And I was like, what did just happen? Like, that's not what you said Mm -hmm. you guys were like. Like, I almost, you know, got killed. And she, she really eloquently expresses how tough it is to be there right now with global warming, with injustice, with, I mean, it's just brutal. And who am I to show up and be like, well, it wasn't my fault. So you better treat me with respect. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I left really not understanding exactly what happened, but understanding that we know a lot less than we think we do.
1: Right. Uh, And she
0: said it really beautifully. And it's really hard to watch this episode without being mesmerized by this woman's work and how much Mm. she's given, you know? Um,
1: Of course, that is a situation or an episode or an, an interview that I'm sure you've been asked a lot, obviously, because of the intensity of it. But is there a favorite story or a person or experience that you had while filming any of your shows that you don't really get asked about enough, but it's something that has really stuck with you and has sort of altered your course in life as well. And and you want to share a little bit about it.
0: Yeah, I think there is a lesson I've learned traveling the world that was made even more, I don't want to say obvious, but it's a lesson that I used a lot during my days in the Amazon, which is basically uh, the power of communicating without relying on verbal exchange. You know, like you go to Myanmar, you go to, I don't know, Kazbegi in the border of Russia. People don't speak your language. The alphabet is completely different. But there is a, a way of connecting with people with their eyes. It's hard to put my finger on exactly what it is that makes people trust you. But there is something there that's almost like an energy you give that people are willing to receive. I try to apply that everywhere. I walk into the subway and if I see someone who seems really aggressive or grumpy, uh, I try to look at them with kindness. Some people are open to receiving that. Some people are not. And during my days in the Amazon, I connected with a lot of people that have nothing to do with me. Like They don't live the same life I live. They don't eat the same things I eat. They don't Speak the same languages I speak, but I really feel like they'll miss me. And I know for a fact that I miss them. Mm -hmm. And watching the show and understanding these connections and being able to make them laugh without even speaking the same idiom, that was really something I'll never forget and I'll treasure forever. Also, even though we touch upon some really, really, really tough subjects on the show, I'm really proud of how. We've been able to bring lightness. And even though, you know, I'm in this community, the episode tonight that's airing tonight is about descendants of slaves that basically created these communities. So, of course, we have to talk about racism and uh, police brutality and uh, reparations, but I dance with them. I cook with them. I have fun with them. And that's something that I've also discovered by traveling. Like, if you go to a place that had just been dis- has just been destroyed by i don't know a natural disaster quite often you see this mother like doing her daughter's hair and people will try to find sources of happiness sources of hope and sources of connection and i think that's what really sets this show apart from other shows about the amazon it's because we are humanizing these headlines like you feel for these people and you learn to love these people and admire these people as well.
1: Yeah, you do a really, really good job of finding like a humanizing aspect to each side of the environmental issues. And, you know, what role do you think optimism plays in the global environmental crisis and how even just reading some of these articles that have come out in the headlines in the last couple of days, which I know a lot of people have known about for a long time, but I feel like a lot has just come out in the last couple of days about you know the global environmental crisis, and it can be really
0: discouraging.
1: Yeah, and you feel yeah. super hopeless. And so, how yeah. do you think optimism can play a role in this, and and how does it?
0: Well, I think that's all we have right now, and uh, I'll mention you know some people that were able to bring me the hope that I needed so badly. But if you think about how relevant and how huge and how massive uh, the Amazon is, I say this often, but I think it paints a more clear picture of what we're talking about here. If the Amazon was a country, it would be the sixth largest country in the world. One third of the trees around the world are in the Amazon. 20% of the fresh flowing water is there. Uh, It's larger than Western Europe. I mean, if you think about what would happen to the planet if all this was destroyed, I mean, it would speed up what we're already seeing, you know, get ready for more extreme weather, for more hurricanes, for more wildfires. But I do believe that in order for you to cure something, you need to first admit there's a problem. You need to diagnose the illness. And I think we've reached that point. I also feel like this generation and younger folks are a lot more understanding and they're a lot more aware of how urgent these changes have to happen. So whether we're talking about the greater Thunbergs of the world, whether we're talking about the young Americans that are, you know, fighting for the Green New Deal or pro the Paris Accord or they recycling or they're it's, I don't know, creating movements that will have an impact in the environment. Or we're, when we talk about young people in the Amazon, it's crazy. You go into an indigenous community or like the ribeirinhos which are the river people, there is a massive generational gap. If you talk to the old ones, they are like, well, but we need to survive the economy. There's nothing. It's too late. There's nothing that we can do. And you talk to young people and it's really refreshing. Like They're like, no, this is what we're doing. Each one of us, each person has to protect one section of the tribe. So whatever animals are there, we're the ones that are sort of monitoring them, making sure they're okay. Um, so I think young people give me hope. And, and I think numbers matter and statistics matter. So when I read you know, all of these horrific News and facts and headlines that we read yesterday, talking about how bad our situation is. I think we do need these wake-up calls. You know, when I when I was born, one percent of what we know as the Amazon was destroyed. Now, twenty-two percent has been destroyed. If we reach forty percent, we're going to reach a point of no return. So, yeah, I I try to. When I went down there, I knew it was going to be tough. I knew I was going to find a lot of problems, but I wanted to find solutions. I wanted to find lightness. I wanted to find hope. I'm not the kind of guy that is just going to sit here and host a show about the apocalypse. It's not what I'm interested in as a host or as a man, as a person. So I think I found that.
1: On your journey in in filming the show, it actually sounds like unbelievably life-changing and to be exposed and to be like put in there and And in a way of not just finding out and seeing for your own eyes what's going on, but also, like you said, like actually humanizing it, putting a humanistic sort of lens for us to see like these are real people. It's not just a headline. I'm sure the answer to this is yes, but I would love to know how did your life change like your everyday life? Have you changed anything in your everyday life after having filmed that show?
0: Oh, for sure. There's this one episode that talks about extractivism and I know that that's a word that may sound boring to people, but it affects so much our lives and we're just, I feel like people just change the channel when you hear certain words. Mm -hmm. So I'm careful when I say them. I go into a sustainable chocolate farm. I dive deep into the palm oil industry. I didn't know this, but seventy five percent of what we find in the supermarket has palm oil in it, your lipstick, your dish detergent, your pizza, your chocolate, everything. So like sort of knowing how to shop for these things, and I'm not placing blame and saying it's all of our it's all our faults, but I think we have a role, and we we're part of this bigger puzzle. I also spend a lot of time with illegal miners in one of the oldest mining facilities in the Amazon. So, that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to bring, to, to prove to the viewers that all of these things, they're not stuck in the Amazon. Whatever happens in the Amazon, it affects us. Whatever we do affects the Amazon. So, I wanted to bring that closer to us because truth is, in a globalized world and considering where we are when it comes to the environment, is it's everything connected it's a domino effect and i think that's a really fun episode i think it's eye-opening i think it's informative and it has changed the way you know i buy a cell phone because there is gold in there the way i shop for certain things like uh organizations that i think i want to support and you don't need like to support organizations by spending money that's not what i mean but there are things that you can do. And regardless of doing something or not, I think being aware and being able to choose if you want to be a part of the solution or not, I think it's a healthy impulse. I think people should know more. They should seek information. They should be curious. On the show, like I said, it's a human journey and it's not just their journey. It's my journey as well. No, it's how it affected me. It's how it affected my life and my choices. And I have a feeling, and at least from the feedback that I've been getting, I think it, it will probably have that impact on a lot of people because I think people relate to the experience I'm having down there. Mm.
1: Mm. And the show is out right now. It's called Unknown Amazon, right? And it's on Vice.
0: It's on Vice TV every Tuesday, 10 p.m. Eastern, Unknown Amazon. Yes.
1: So my last question for you is, what's looking up for you? What are you most hopeful about right now?
0: Oh, wow. I'm going to be selfish and talk about a personal thing I'm really excited about. (laughs) Well, two things. One, uh, on a professional level, I think Unknown Amazon has been a life-changing experience and opportunity that has opened so many doors. So now I've been talking to a couple of production companies and a couple of networks about like really working on a couple of projects that were the types of projects that I've always dreamed of working on. Um, And Unknown Amazon is just sort of like the first one of them and the first step towards doing something that I still have to pinch myself every morning to believe that I'm working on this. And second, not to get too personal, but I am trying to become a dad. Yay. And and, um, so I'm hopeful about that as well. That's
1: so great. That's so cool. That's not too personal. We love that here. Um, (laughs) There's a lot of talk of kids on this show because I'm a mom of two and I've had two very different experiences bringing both my sons into the world. The first was... I was pregnant and carried him and the second actually was with a gestational carrier and you know through our embryo and yeah. having a surrogate and so that whole experience was incredibly different and really emotional and really tough at times but also one of the most magical and beautiful experiences and journeys I've ever been on. So we yeah, love I have
0: so much respect. I mean, I have I love the women in my life and I have an amazing relationship with uh, my mom, uh, but I have this insane respect for carriers and egg donors and surrogate mothers. And cause I think it really is a job that comes with a lot of altruism and generosity. And uh, I think it, yeah, it it connects people in a really, in the most beautiful way. It really is. It's uh, I think it, who am I? I'm a guy, so I don't I don't know what it would feel like to be a mom, but I, I can't stress enough. I can't praise, applaud enough, you know, these people, women yes, in general. Absolutely. And I know you have the most gorgeous family because I follow you on Instagram. <laughs> and yeah, it's wonderful. It's inspiring.
1: Well, I'm biased. I do think they're the most beautiful little souls ever. <laughs> the last thing that we do on looking up is I wish we were together and you'd pick your own, but I pick for you a random card as you were talking um, from my okay. another one of my little babies, the Things Are Looking Up Optimism Deck of Cards, and okay. it's just a holistic or science based prompt that you can take with you for your day, a little homework to uh, to uh, take with you from this podcast. So this is yours. Love that. This is your card that just randomly got chosen. Okay, here's your prompt for today. Think about a small step you have taken or that you plan to take today to get you a tiny bit closer to a goal you are currently working towards. Remind yourself that it is the small steps that actually get you closer to the finish line. So step small, but always keep stepping, which I think you do already. So anyways, I- I
0: love that. I love that.
1: I had such a good time chatting and I'm- I'm so excited to have this new show to watch now. Tonight, I'm starting it. And to see all the other things that you do and also to get a peek into your life and fatherhood, hopefully, in the near future.
0: Thank you so much. I mean, I I really think your podcast is phenomenal. I really respect and uh, strive for mental health. Like I said, I've been working with a therapist for decades now. And and I feel like you bring a freshness and you sort of like make a subject that people are intimidated by really accessible, you know, with your podcast and with the way you you host this project. I think it's amazing. I really do. And I'm proud to be here. And I hope it was the first of many conversations.
1: Thank you so much. That means so much. And I can already tell this is the first of many conversations. I can't wait to keep in touch. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Thank you again. Thank you. Bye.
0: Bye-bye.
1: Thanks so much for listening to Looking Up. For more optimistic content, follow me at Dr. Deepika Chopra. For more info and how to get your very own Things Are Looking Up optimism deck of cards, head to thingsarelookingup.co. If you like what you hear and you want to support the show, please don't forget to rate, review, and follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Our theme music is Me and Day by Tommy, courtesy of Terrible Records. I'm your host, Dr. Deepika Chopra, and I'll see you next Monday for your weekly dose of optimism.